Hebrews chapter 10. I feel a certain amount of pressure every week doing what it is that I am doing right now, which is to stand before the people of God with the Word of God. It's not something to be taken lightly, for when the Word speaks, God speaks. There are certain passages above others, though, that cause me to pause For the severity of the language and the seriousness of the subject at hand is so overwhelming. Let's begin with the passage. You'll see what I mean. After spending an inordinate amount of time in the first half of Hebrews chapter 10, describing the extent to which Jesus Christ has offered himself as a sacrifice once for all time, describing the sufficiency of his blood, to redeem sinners and assuage the wrath of God. After encouraging us to draw near, to hold fast, to consider how we might encourage one another, this is how the author continues, starting in verse 26 of Hebrews chapter 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But instead of fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You'll notice a Slight shift in the tone, beginning in verse 32. But recall in former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle of sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Father, this morning, let us stand in wonder of the grace commuted through Jesus Christ, of the holiness of your indignation, in the wonder that 
we poor sinners might be saved. And in the terror that some will not. I pray that we would leave this room this morning in all of your holiness, floored by your mercy and renewed in vigor to be more loving evangelists than we have ever been. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If there's a big idea that I think emerges from the passage this morning, it's something like this. While a fraudulent faith falters, a true faith endures to the very end. While a fraudulent faith falters, a true faith endures to the very end. As long as there has been a community of faith, there has been persecution. And as long as there has been persecution, there's been a group among the faithful who have wanted out. The cost of discipleship is too steep. The mount of obedience too high. The valley of faith too wide, too deep. The journey of endurance, of perseverance, too intimidating. They've wanted out. This is what we call apostasy. Simply put, apostasy is by one's words or deeds choosing to renege on following Jesus. By one's words and deeds choosing to renege on following Jesus. It reveals one's faith as a pseudo-faith, unable and unwilling to engage believers in fellowship and to engage Christ in faithful obedience. It's not heresy, apostasy. It's not heresy. There are many, many heretics throughout the Bible and throughout the ages who have claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ but have some grievous error in some part of their theological system, sometimes fatally so, but they still desire to follow Jesus Christ in whatever mechanism that they have arranged to follow him. This isn't heresy. This isn't getting some part of doctrine wrong. This is choosing to walk away from Christ altogether. It's not immaturity. This isn't someone who, in the early days of their faith or beaten down by the circumstances of the world, does not have a battle-hardened faith yet, who just needs encouragement and needs the company of the saints around them and the body of Christ to just keep going, to have the encouragement and the strength of the Holy Spirit to endure another day. This is not immaturity. It's not weak faith. Rather, it's an extraordinarily strong faith in the certainty that Jesus Christ is not worth following and choosing to walk away. And it's certainly not about losing one's salvation. You can't undo the work of Christ. His sacrifice cannot be unmade. His body cannot be unspent. His soul cannot be unrent. The wrath of God can never penetrate the blood of Jesus Christ upon a true believer. These are apostates, fakers, frauds, Moles within the church of Jesus Christ fueled by curiosity but impoverished in faith. 
In the Old Testament, we see an awful lot of apostates. We see both in Isaiah chapter 1 and Jeremiah chapter 2, faith abandoned for immorality and idolatry. In fact, we see that an awful lot in the Old Testament. They're mentioned throughout the New Testament too. And if you wanted to note any of these, they're worth coming back to in the context of what we're talking about in Hebrews 10 this morning. Judas Iscariot is probably the most famous of all of the apostates in the New Testament who professed faith in Jesus Christ, but when the going got tough, he abandoned Christ in idolatry for the wealth that was offered to him by the Pharisees and in the immorality of apostasy. Demas in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy chapter 1. John's adversaries in 1 John chapter 2. Over and over and over again, both the Old and New Testaments warn us that there are among us those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, but in a moment of persecution, when things get hard, when the faith is tested, it will not prove true, and they will abandon the faith. Apostates. And conjoined to almost all of those warnings is the warning for those who are on the fence, who are considering making this unforgivable decision to walk away from Jesus Christ. Hold strong. Draw close. Survive on the encouragement that comes exclusively by being near one another here in the body of Christ. In fact, this is what the author of Hebrews talks about repeatedly. There are a number of what are called warning passages throughout Hebrews. We've talked about them before. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 through 4, 13. 5, 11 through 6, 20. 10, here we are, 19 through 39. Chapters 12, verse 12 through 13, 19. All of these warning passages laid out Six of them over and over and over again in the book of Hebrews, warning believers about the nature of apostasy and warning those of a fraudulent faith that now is the time to repent of your sin and to entrust yourself to the work of Jesus Christ. Not motivated by a lingering curiosity, but an enduring faith. And so this is the passage that we come to this morning. It is notorious for New Testament scholars and its difficulty to reckon with. We will understand that there are essentially two passages here conjoined to each other. The first is about confrontation. Verses 26 through 31 is about confrontation. Here our author is confronting those of a fraudulent faith and encouraging them to turn toward a genuine, enduring, persevering faith. 26 through 31 is about confrontation. The last few verses, 32 through 39, are about comfort. The tone changes. It's less confrontational and much, much more encouraging. Now, I, I want to make the point, and I want to make the point definitively, that we understand that what we're not talking about here is that people who believe that they're followers of Jesus Christ and have now been called into question, am I really a follower of Jesus Christ? I've sinned that one time. I remember it lingers over me. I, I can't seem to get it out of my heart and out of my head. Surely this must be a passage about me, right? It's not a passage about you. 
Well, I'm terrified, absolutely unconfident in the extreme that Jesus Christ can actually save someone as bad as I am. This isn't a passage about you. Just for a moment, I want you to turn over to John chapter 6. I want to make this point strongly and definitively. It is my certain belief that no one who is a follower of Jesus Christ, no one who is a follower of Jesus Christ, no matter how weak their faith, no matter how hard the journey, no matter how uncertain their personal conviction is of their salvation, that no one who is a follower of Jesus Christ will be left behind by Jesus Christ. No one who says, Jesus, I repent of my sin and I rely exclusively on you to reconcile me to a holy God. Wash me in your blood. Cleanse me by your righteousness. Fill me with your spirit. That no one who in earnest faith, regardless of how then they proceed in that faith, if that faith is genuine, I have no concern whatsoever that their faith will leave them behind. Because Jesus says here in John chapter 6, verse 30, All that the Father gives to me will come. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Do you see that? Who is doing the bringing? It is the Father. Who is doing the holding? It is the Son. Who is held forever and ever by the Father and the Son? Those who would come to Him. It's John Bunyan who is famous for writing Pilgrim's Progress who wrote 50-some other books who also writes an entire book on that single phrase called Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ an entire book that is grounded in the whoever comes to me I will never cast out in a very very good little book uh, Gentle and Lowly The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers written by Dane Ortland, he quotes John Bunyan here but I am a great sinner you say I will in no wise cast you out says Christ but I am an old sinner you say I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. Uh, but I am a hard-hearted sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. I am a backsliding sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. Uh, but, but, but I have served Satan all my days, say you. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, says you. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, you say. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. Those who are placed in the hands of Jesus Christ by the Father, our God, all-loving and holy, cannot, by any measure, be taken away from Him. They are His forever. You are His forever. Have you come to Him? Then you have come to Him in the security that He provides forever. This is not about you. 
This is about those who have made the obvious choice to walk away. We know the context happening here in Hebrews chapter 10 and the context of the book entire. There are a group of people who left Judaism and joined with the Jesus followers, but the persecution has started in earnest and they've been worn out by it. They are exhausted at how hard it is to endure in staying in this community of those who follow Jesus Christ. And they're saying, I'm done. Let me out. I need to go back to what I had before. And the author here is pleading with them, pleading with them in love and in passion, but in a raw and unfiltered truth. Do not go back. Hold fast to Christ. For if we go on sinning, here is the confrontation. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, sinning deliberately, apostasy is described in Hebrews and throughout the Bible as something related both to our belief and to our actions. You can be an apostate by denying Jesus Christ. You can be an apostate by denying the life that is marked by following Jesus Christ. Uh, in college, my best friend's close friend leaves college early, sophomore year, goes off to Colorado to be a ski instructor and to live one of the most heinously immoral lives of anyone I've ever personally known, to indulge every whim, to do every vain and disgusting thing he could put his mind to. And he did it with earnest and great success. And so Josh, my buddy, calls him, and he's devastating, and he says, don't, don't you know what you're doing? Don't you know the life that you're living? Don't you know the danger that you're in? And he says, I'm not in any danger. Don't you understand? I think I believe the exact same things you believe. Is there a God? Sure. Is Jesus his son? Sure. Are we redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? Sure. But that's knowledge. It's not faith. Demons have knowledge. The devil has knowledge. But that's not faith. When he says the righteous ones will live by faith, quoting Habakkuk, and, and Paul says again in Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17, the righteous will live by faith. That's not faith. This is apostasy. Terribly and awfully knowledgeable apostasy. Apostasy is described in Hebrews and throughout the Bible as something related to both our belief and if you took the time and you went back to Numbers chapter 15, you went back to the Old Testament law, you would find that for any number of sins, there were any number of sacrifices that could be made. This sin required this sacrifice, and this sin required this sacrifice, and this sin required this sacrifice. But there was a sin, a sin of apostasy. What sacrifice do you offer for that? How do I assuage the wrath of God? How do I prove my sincerity after committing apostasy? And it's the only sin described there in Numbers chapter 15, the only sin in the entirety of the Old Testament for which there was no sacrifice. There was no help. There was no mercy. Now that doesn't mean that anyone who sins is beyond God's mercy. Or passages like 
1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we're lying. We make God a liar. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The presumption from John is that, of course, Christians of sincere faith will sin, but there is this sin, this deliberate sinning, this sin of apostasy, of walking away, knowing what it is that we have done wrong and continuing to do it anyway by rejecting Jesus Christ and having no regard whatsoever for what he's done for us at the cross. These are not people of genuine faith. These are apostates, fraudulent, fake. There is for them a point known only to the providence of God where they have believed and acted in such a way that there is this point of no return. Out in the universe, out here beyond what we can see, there are things that we seem to reckon as black holes. These are stars that have died. And in the middle of this black hole, there is a, there is a point, there is a small singularity whose gravity is so great that nothing can escape it not even light and there is this point in space where you can get up near the black hole and observe it from a distance but if you cross this invisible line the gravity is too strong and nothing can escape its gravity it's called the event horizon not even light Nothing but God himself, I suppose, could escape after having passed the event horizon. This is literarily the Rubicon, a point of no return. And this is the apostasy that is preached here in Hebrews 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but instead a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Think about how terrifying that language is. Now, I've heard it argued that this is not language that is about apostasy. This is a language about believers being punished. Nowhere in Scripture is a believer described as an of God first. And nowhere in Scripture is the fury of God in fire described as something other than that which destroys. There is a refining fire. This is not that. This is a fire that consumes. Do you see? A fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The fiery consequence of apostasy is consistent with Jesus' teaching on hell in Luke 16 and in Mark chapter 9 and Matthew 25. Go ahead and turn over to Mark chapter 9 real quick. I want you to see this for yourself. Jesus is speaking here contextually. We don't know exactly of what, but it has some sin against children uh, declared here in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. The grievous things that we have done as a modern world to sexualize and abuse our children in media, in the arts, in popular culture, woe to us for the things that we've done 
And if your hand, verse 43, causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell. There may be hyperbole worked in here. You can decide for yourself. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And they've heard it said over and over again in popular culture by people who allegedly follow Jesus Christ. I I love Jesus. I don't really love God per se. And I I don't really love the church as it were. And I don't really love God the Father very much. But I really like this idea of Jesus. Jesus who is kind and Jesus who is fluffy and Jesus who is pliable and Jesus who does whatever it is that I want him to do. And I think to myself, have you ever read the words of Jesus Christ? He is full of mercy and grace. He is self-sacrificial like no one in history has ever been. But he talks about hell way more than he ever talks about heaven. And he describes it in greater detail than anyone else in the entirety of the Bible. Because he is also holy and lived in holiness in deference to our Holy Father. He is full of righteousness. And he warns of the despair of those who would reject him. Fire unquenchable forever. And as an evangelical church, we have made much of the good news and have broken it down into some unknown thing to the New Testament writers by never giving them the bad news. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that's offered exclusively through him is only good news in light of the real problem, which is not as Joel Osteen and Kenneth Hagin and others would say is you just don't have enough money. Your body is breaking down. Your boss doesn't like you. Your car won't start. What's the real problem? You are unrighteous. And he is holy. And the wrath of God has been reserved until such a day when his holiness will overtake the unrighteousness of the things on the earth. Woe to you on that day. There is one hope. That hope is Jesus Christ. Fall at his feet in a repentant and sincere faith. Anyone, he says here to illustrate, He says here to illustrate, anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, he says that in sort of a subtle way, very calm, very straightforward, but that's actually a fairly tragic thing, right? And and I love the way that he describes the action of the offender against the law of Moses. What did they do there? Trampled underfoot the Son of God, one. Two, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, two. And has thirdly outraged the spirit of grace. Trampled, profaned, outraged. And then quoting here the book of Deuteronomy, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Which are quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 32. Wherein the author speaks of the fury of the wrath of God and implicitly pleads with the readers to avail themselves of the mercy of Christ. And then he says here, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
the most famous sermon preached on American soil was preached 280 years and one week ago by Jonathan Edwards in Enfield, Connecticut, and it's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It is not meant, you have to understand, it was not ever meant to make followers of Jesus Christ nervous about their eternal estate. It was meant instead to call those who were knowingly of a fraudulent faith to come to obedience. In that time in the American colonies, no one wanting to be barred from the church where everyone, it was required by many laws to attend church. There was what was called a a halfway covenant where I was allowed to be a member of the church without being a follower of Jesus Christ. And you can imagine how the irony of that particular situation just enraged Jonathan Edwards, who is maybe America's greatest theologian. He harped on it for many years, and eventually what I think many evangelical believers forget, he was fired for it. But it's in this sermon that he says things like this. And and I want to give due deference here because you understand Edwards preaches with fire and fury, but he is a very calm man. The room is filled with several hundred people. It's deeper than this one, but not much wider. He's on a pulpit that's elevated above the entirety of the room. His sermons are written out word for word. And in a calm but sometimes unsteady voice, not commanding, not powerful, he reads in an almost monotone sense these words as a plea as a plea begging these people who are halfway in but have no real interest in following he's begging them to reckon with the wrath of a holy God and all the fury that entails in the most famous part of that sermon he says and I quote just like one holding a dirty spider by the web over a fire God holds you over the pit of hell He abhors you. His anger is provoked and his wrath burns against you like fire. He looks at you as worthy of nothing but to be cast into the lake of fire. His eyes are too pure to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more detestable to him than the most hated venomous snake is in ours. You have offended him more infinitely than any criminal has offended a judge and yet it is nothing but his hand that keeps you from falling. O sinner, he continues, Consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath. Wide and bottomless the pit is, full of fire and wrath. You are held over that pit by the hand of God. He continues, God is standing right now to give pity to you. This is the day of mercy. You cry out to him now with the hope of obtaining mercy, but once the day of mercy is past, your loudest and most painful cries and shrieks will be in vain. You will be wholly lost and thrown away by God, and he will have no pity. God will have no other use for you but to suffer misery. Your existence will have no other meaning than to be a vessel of his wrath, fitted for destruction. He preaches to them deftly and beautifully and carefully of the mercy and grace that is offered through Jesus Christ 
today, right now, today. But he is very serious and pulls zero punches when it comes to describing the consequence of what it means to walk away in faithlessness. It begs the question, are we allowed when we share the gospel to relay what the Bible has said about the tragedy that awaits all of those who reject Jesus Christ. We are not allowed. We are compelled. It is essential. It is vital. It is necessary. It is absolutely immediate that when we speak of the hope that comes through Jesus Christ and proclaim Him as Savior, that we let them know what they're being saved from, not what they perceive they're being saved from, but what we know they're being saved from. Spurgeon puts it this way, either Jesus must die or you must die or justice must die. There is no other way. And this is the gospel that we preach. Either I will pay the penalty for my sin or Jesus will. There is no other option. There is no third direction. Plead with them like the kind of people who actually believe what Scripture says, that hell is real and it is devastating to be separated from the love of a holy God. When it is so abundant that he wants to have you close as he's made obvious in sending his son, Jesus Christ. Have you thought about this lately? Have you wrestled with the fury of God generated by his holiness? If the evangelical church in this age is faulted for anything, I think it will be this. We have a very low view of the holiness of God and consequentially, we have a very high view of our personal achievements and almost no regard for the extent to which Jesus works to bring us back to our Holy Father. Now, if that were the end, that would be a truly devastating moment to end on. There are people gathered in the room. They're reading this letter from our author. And some of them may be wavering at this point. I I, I think he's talking about apostates, but what do I do now? Is he talking about me? Is there any encouragement? Is there any hope? Is there any prospect for us? Well, of course there is. Go ahead and take a look at verse 32. This is where the confrontation ends and the comfort begins. But recall the former days when you were enlightened and you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. He really gives them three areas of comfort. Three areas of comfort. Let me express these to you. The first is this. He appeals to them based on the history of their faith. He appeals to them based on the history of their faith. 
You recall the former days. You've been through this before. You were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with suffering. Beginning of the sermon, that as long as there has been a community of faith, there has been persecution. And there have been those who wanted out. And what he's saying, look, from the very beginning of your time in this community of faith, there have been those who have persecuted you. And sometimes you have been publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes you've been partners with those so treated. But you kept going. You've made it this far. Your faith has legs. Can't you see? Verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, right? You've been through this. This is old hat. I know that you can make it tomorrow because you made it yesterday and you're making it today. This is why it's important for those of a wavering faith to gather around and say, hey, look, 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 look what you've already been through. Look what the Lord has gotten you through. Look what the author has done so far perfecting your faith. Uh, you're not frail. You're not weak. This is a trial that is endurable. You can make it through this one. For some of you, 2020 was one of the hardest years of your life. Guess what? You made it. 2021 might be worse. <laughs> but guess what? You made it through last year. By the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll make it through this one as well. He appeals to them based on their history. Secondly, he appeals to them on the basis of what comes next. You had compassion on those who were in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? This property is not worth that much to me. Since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You might think of those statements that Jesus makes in John's gospel. I'm going to prepare a place for you, the likes of which your minds cannot conceive. And where I go, I bring you to be with me also. For in my Father's house are many rooms. It's an abiding possession. It lasts forever. What I give up now pales in comparison to what I gain later. He is, as Jim Elliott would say, no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he can never lose. What can I never lose? I can never lose the love of Christ. I can never lose proximity to God that he has earned for me. I can never lose his holiness. I can never lose his righteousness. I can never lose the blood that covers all of my sin. It's mine forever. He will in no wise let me go. This whole world, for all of its challenges, for all of its points of endurance and perseverance is temporary but that which comes next lasts forever he even says here in quoting Habakkuk chapter 2 of all the places he could have chosen so don't throw away your confidence which has great reward for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God you may receive what is promised for yet a little while yet a little while just a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. What does he mean that the coming one is coming? The righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk chapter 2 is a fascinating chapter in a book that's only three chapters long. Chapter 1, Habakkuk cries out and he says, Lord, your people are so wicked, these Israelites. You really need to do something about that. And I want to say it's the Chaldeans. I can't remember exactly. And the Lord says, okay, sure. Remember those wicked people over here? I'm going to bring them in and devastate the Israelites to punish them for their sin. And Habakkuk goes, wait, don't do that. Don't do the exact same thing I just asked you to do. 
<laughs> pump the brakes. I wanted to whine about it. I didn't want you to do anything. <laughs> and he goes, well, it's going to happen. But then, guess what? I'll deal with the Chaldeans after this. But just remember, this is temporary. This is not the end. In the end, the one who is coming will come, and he will restore Jerusalem in righteousness. And the bulk of the rest of the book is geared toward assuring the people of God that they can have confidence in the work of God to bring them through to the very end. So he not only appeals to them based on their history of faithful obedience, not only based on what comes next, he also appeals to them on the basis of personal fraternity. If you go back and look at the very first sentence of the passage this week, he says in verse 26, in some sort of royal we, a literary we, for if we go on sinning, and then it's almost always hypothetical after that, for if one does this and one does that and one does that, and then he changes it to the second person, for if you do this and you do this and you do this, and then he comes back for the very first time since the first verse of the passage, he says here in verse 39, but we, you're not in it alone. You're not all by yourself. You're not an island floating away from the continent. Each man is a piece of what it is that we do here in the body of Christ. But we, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is who you are. Follower of Jesus Christ, know for sure this morning that is who you are. You are not the one who shrinks back. You will never be destroyed. You have faith. You are preserving your soul by the power given to you through Jesus Christ and his spirit. You will endure. You will carry on. You will make it to the end. Such is the faith that's been given to you by Jesus. Do you know? And so we take great encouragement here from what he says. Is it right to preach and to teach and to evangelize with the reality of the fury of the wrath of God against the unrighteous? Of course it is. It's necessary. But where is the heart? Where is the heart of that evangelist? When Edwards preaches this sermon, there are some in the back of the room, they would say after everyone has filed out, there are little marks left on the backs of the pews where some people were so terrified of literally falling into hell at that moment they reached out with their nails and clawed the backs of the pews for fear that they might fall right then and did Edwards file out of the small building pumping his fist that he had terrified the people he wept at the opportunity to preach to them again and again and again the mercy of God whose heart is obvious in Christ who offers them a way to live with him forever that is free freely expressed by his grace I was in high school uh, I just graduated it was before I went to college and the youth pastor at our church invited me uh, to help with uh, the youth group um, to go on a trip with the youth group to New York City to do evangelism. And I remember being in a park, and I, we were, I was well in over my head. I'm 17, 18 years old, and I thought I knew more things than I knew, and I really didn't think I knew very much. 
and we've been set loose in this park to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And before I could uh, share it with anybody, somebody shared it with me. Old guy comes up to me, and uh, he looks just absolutely angry at the fact that I'm breathing. And he says, uh, hey, let me tell you something. <laughs> yeah, fine, I'm doing well too. Nice afternoon, enjoying the weather. First words, let me tell you something. You cannot conceive of the fire of hell. How your body regenerated through all the ages would. Oh, okay. Good way to lead. But you don't even know my name. Take a moment. Pump the brakes. Are we ever going to get to the good news? Maybe he was mentally unbalanced or maybe he had a particular proclivity to passages like Hebrews 10. But there's very little good news. My prayer for you is that the reality of the fury of God expressed in the unquenchable fire of hell would settle in. That it would keep you awake at night. Not for your eternal destination, but for those who have not yet heard about what it means to follow Jesus. And that it would motivate you for the love, deep and abiding that you have for those around you to share with them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's stand.